welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, November 29th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in junior high, I started thinking that, you know, I may want to become a lawyer. That might be my, my career of choice. I loved history and government. I wanted to help people. Uh, plus, I've always loved uh, legal uh, thrillers, John Grisham books, and movies that, that connect in some kind of, you know, the law department area. Plus, my grandma White even told me before I graduated from high school, the world needs more Christian lawyers. Well, during my junior and senior year of high school, I had a favorite teacher, uh, Gary Beals. He taught marine science uh, at Waikia High School on the Big Island of Hawaii. And I became so fascinated with everything related to the ocean that with a little prompting, Mr. Beals suggested I apply to go to the United States Coast Guard Academy. I even spent uh, a week in New London, Connecticut, visiting the school and getting to experience what academy life was like. So uh, my plan was simple. I was going to attend the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, I would major in government, and then I would go to law school to become a maritime lawyer. I would then serve my required time in the armed forces, and then I could choose to either stay in and make it a career, or I could opt out and become a private practice attorney. I was accepted into the class of 1990 for the Coast Guard Academy in November of my senior year, and my master plan was in motion. A couple months later, January of 1986, a wrench was thrown into that master plan. I was informed that I had failed my medical entrance exam because of acne. Now, I know many of you have heard this story before, but I started seeing a dermatologist, and after a few months, my acne was all cleared up. But it wasn't until after I'd graduated from high school that all of my appeals to the academy were denied, and I received final word that I would not be able to attend the Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut that fall. I was crushed. I mean, I truly believed uh, from the time I had that uh, notice of failing uh, up until I got that final word that God was going to to work everything out and, and all the plans that I had made would actually come to pass, but it didn't happen that way. I'd put all my hopes into that one basket. The only other college I applied to early on was the University of Hawaii, that fallback school that I knew I would never need, and suddenly I needed it. So now what? Well, what's going to happen? Where was my life heading uh, now that the road that I thought I was going to travel on had hit a dead end? Welcome to the first week of Advent and to a sermon series entitled, This unexpected Christmas. Advent is a season of preparation in the Christian church for Sundays leading up to Christmas, including Christmas Eve. Advent means coming in Latin, and there are two comings that we anticipate. Of course, there's the first coming of Jesus as a baby born in that little town of Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. But Advent also anticipates the second coming of Jesus as well, in the fullness of time when uh, he will come to bring the completion of God's kingdom on earth. Both are present in this season of waiting. Frederick Buechner, in his collection of sermons uh, entitled The Magnificent Defeat, says this about Advent. It is Advent, 
The time just before the adventure begins when everybody is leaning forward to hear what will happen, even though they already know what will happen and what will not happen, when they listen hard for meaning, their meaning, and begin to hear only faintly at first the beating of unseen wings. It's so true. Many of us know the stories. We know what will and will not happen in the Christmas story. And yet, every year we still come and we listen and we wait because the meaning of those stories gives meaning to our lives as well. And the unseen wings of angels bring them to us, even today. So, speaking of angels, let us begin the Gospel of Luke Chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So God gets this whole Christmas party started by dispatching an angel named Gabriel from the heavenly realm. Angel, by the way, is a transliteration of the Greek word agilos, which means messenger. And so God has sent Gabriel with a message down to that little town of, no, not Bethlehem, Nazareth. Yes. Now, much is known uh, today, much more is known today about Nazareth than, than it ever did back in Jesus' time. In fact, Nazareth isn't mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It's not among the 63 villages in Galilee mentioned in the Hebrew Talmud. It's not even among the 45 villages mentioned by the first century historian Josephus who knew that area well. This was truly an insignificant town. Its population was estimated to be between 100 to 400, but it could have quite possibly been much, much smaller than even 100. Now, we don't know much about this girl named Mary at this point. We know she's engaged or as New King James Version puts it, betrothed. Uh, numerous biblical commentators describe what betrothal was like back in Jesus' day. Parents of an impending uh, couple would arrange for the marriage of their children. When it was agreed upon, and, and the women did have some sort of a say in the matter, the bride-to-be would live at home with her family for up to another year after announcing the engagement. The groom, who would be working hard to build an addition to his family home for he and his bride to live in, he, he would uh, then come when the addition was completed to get his wife from her parents' home, and the wedding celebration would last for an entire week. However, legally, the marriage would have already been sealed at the time of betrothal. In fact, prior to the ceremony, the relationship could only be broken by divorce or death. Now, the age that young women got engaged in Jesus' day was anywhere between 12 years old and their early 20s. Most scholars believe Mary would have been on the younger end of that spectrum, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. So here we have this young girl from no place special who's being visited by an angelic messenger. Oh, oh yeah, there's one more detail I forgot to mention that we need to pay attention to. Her fiancé, a nice uh, Jewish boy named Joseph, is descended from the house of David. David, of course, was one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. David's, David's lineage would eventually produce the one whom the prophets foretold would come, the Messiah. 
John Carroll, in his New Testament commentary on Luke, makes the interesting remark that Mary probably expected it would be quite the honor of marrying into a family who was descended from King David. Little did she know she's about to be bestowed an even greater honor by God himself. Verse 28. And the angel came and said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Isn't that great? Greetings, favored one. What a wonderful way to be met, don't you think? Biblical scholar Fred Craddock notes that throughout the first two chapters of Luke, Mary is portrayed as being favored of God, thoughtful, obedient, believing, worshipful, and devoted to Jewish law and piety. But none of that is given for the reason as to why God chose her for this task. That's left to God and God alone to know. All we know is that for some reason she is favored by God and that the Lord is with her. Verse 29, but Mary was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Now, most people in the Bible, when uh, there's a story of them being met by an angel, they are immediately afraid, uh, presumably because of the angelic being's appearance, but not Mary. No, it says she is perplexed. It's as if she wants to ask, um... Thank you, but are you sure you have the right address? This is Mary, I'm in Nazareth, I'm pretty much a nobody. Yeah, little does she know that God loves using nobodies for divine purposes. Mary's teenage mind is trying to process this opening greeting, a favored one of the Lord. What could that possibly mean? Verse 30, and continuing, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It all started out so promising, didn't it? You have found favor with God. That's great. Awesome. What is it? A long life? Great health? Did my lottery numbers finally cash in? Uh, no, nothing like that. You're pregnant. Uh, I'm sorry, say what? Now, notice that the, the angel did not ask Mary if she would like to be favored by God in this way. It wasn't, so, hear me out on this, Mary. Um, how would you like to, wait for it, wait for it. Be the mother of God. I mean, God has this crazy idea that with your permission, it just might work. What do you say? No, that's, that's not how the conversation went down. He simply told her, point blank, this is how it's going to be. You're going to be pregnant. So, of course, perplexed is a great response. I found out something this past week in uh, my studies that I had never uh, known before, and it surrounds the apocryphal book, of Tobit. Now, the Apocrypha is a collection of writings that some Christians hold to be as sacred. It's a gross generalization, but think of them as uh, books that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Anyway, the book of Tobit is quite popular. You can find it online and read it for yourself. Anyway, in this story, there's a jealous angel who appears on a bride's wedding night each time she marries and kills her bridegroom. 
It's quite possible that Mary was very familiar with this story. So you might well imagine the appearance of an angel to a betrothed girl might cause a bit of, um, shall we say, distress. But this angel is coming with a blessing. That she, Mary, will give birth to the son of the most high God. That he will continue in the line of the great king David and his reign will be forever. That is a lot for a teenage girl to take in, don't you think? Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Great question. Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Gospel Medicine, says that if it were her, Barbara, she would have had a few other questions that she would have asked. Uh, Will Joseph stick around? Will my parents still love me when they find out? Will my friends stand by me, or will I get dragged into town and stoned to death for sleeping around? Will the pregnancy go all right? Will the labor be hard? Will there be someone there to help me when my time comes? Will I know what to do? You say that this child will be the king of Israel, but what about me? Will I survive this birth? What about me? Ken Geyer, in his wonderful devotional book, Moments with the Savior, argues that it's not the miracle that Mary is questioning by saying, how can this be? It's really the mechanics of the miracle, right? He he imagines a conversation around the local well in Nazareth and how women will start to talk. Loosely woven morals always come unraveled, says one woman. Another woman, half in Mary's defense, speaks up. It's so easy for a nice girl to get into trouble here with what foreign traders spending the night and so many Roman soldiers passing through. And then would come the looks the smirks, the ridicule, an angel visitor, (laughs) and said, what? And you believed her? Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, we who know the story, uh, we need to take a step back uh, before we move on to how it progresses and just stay in this moment, just for a bit, right? Let us not be so quick to move things along. Try to put yourself in Mary's shoes. She knew she was getting married, right? Sometime in the not-so-distant future. She knew that at some point she would become a mother, but that was still quite a bit down the horizon. At least it was prior to the angelic visit. But think about what Mary is about to give up, right? Precious time with her husband, getting to know him, to figuring out who they are as a couple first before children come in the mix. She'd be giving up her youth and her innocence. She'd be giving up control of her body, for pregnancy does things that women often do not sign up for. I think we need to cut Mary some slack and allow her time to grieve what it is she's about to lose. But we know what she's going through don't we? I mean, if we're honest, maybe not the pregnancy part, but we we understand the giving up part. We understand the grieving part. I mean, COVID-19 has taken a lot from us this year, hasn't it? I mean, looking back at the past eight plus months, we want to shout, how can this be? This is not what we had planned. Hanging out with friends, eating in restaurants, going to concerts, attending school in person. 
And we haven't been able to spend time at our favorite amusement parks or museums. We haven't been able to go to live sporting events. I mean, this year has hit us in so many unexpected ways, financially, relationally, mentally. And underneath it all, we have that foreboding health crisis that we're all so keenly aware of, that at any moment, any one of us could get sick and could be potentially life-threatening. It's no joke, and that's why we don't take it lightly. That's, that's why we're still worshiping exclusively online. We are trying to take this global pandemic seriously, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take time to grieve. We've lost so much this year. Frederick Buechner, in that same sermon on Mary's visit, says near the beginning of his message, The storyteller's claim, I believe, is that life has meaning. That the things that happen to people happen not just by accident, like leaves being blown off a tree by the wind, but that there is order and purpose deep down behind them or inside them, and and that they are leading us to not just anywhere, but somewhere. The power of stories is that they are telling us that life adds up somehow, that life itself is like a story. Now, I'm not a person who believes that everything happens for a reason. I think sometimes people make choices or others make choices, and then we're uh, faced to deal with the choices that have been made, but I do believe that life has purpose, and that God can take anything that happens and use it for good in our lives and in the world around us. Barbara Brown Taylor, again from her book Gospel Medicine, puts it this way, Our best laid 10-year plans are interrupted by life's own plans for us, by sudden illnesses and surprise babies, by aging parents and the economy. Terrible things happen and wonderful things happen, but seldom do we know ahead of time exactly what will happen to us. Like Mary, our choices often boil down to yes or no. Yes, I will live this life that is being held out to me, or no, I will not. Yes, I will explore this unexpected turn of events, or no, I will not. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. So Mary asks about the physics behind her impending pregnancy, and Gabriel gives her a single word answer, God, or literally two words, Holy Spirit, it's the same thing, right? God is the one who is behind all of this. God will act to bring the Messiah to Israel, and God's purposes will not be thwarted despite the challenging physics behind it. Now, it is conceivable pun intended, that Mary wondered if she and Joseph would consummate their marriage sooner than she had expected, right? He was descended from the great line of King David, remember? No, no, that's, that's not how it's going to happen, says Gabriel. God's Holy Spirit will overshadow you, which doesn't really explain much to our 21st century minds, does it? What does it mean to be overshadowed by God? Author and speaker Kathleen Norris, in her best-selling book, Amazing Grace, writes this. When a time or place seems touched by God, it's an overshadowing, a sudden eclipsing 
of my priorities and plans. But even in terrible circumstances and calamities, in matters of life and death, if I sense that I am in the shadow of God, I find light. So much light that my vision improves dramatically. I know that holiness is near. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about it, friends? That when we have those overshadowing moments with God, it means that God's priorities and plans begin to take precedence over anything we may have come up on our own. And the light abounds, right? If only we'll pick up our head and open our eyes and look around and recognize that it's there. Verse 36 And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to have been barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. She lived down south, closer to Jerusalem. She's been childless for many, many years, a uh, mark of shame for any woman in the ancient Near East. But now she was pregnant, not just pregnant, she's near the end of her second trimester. And if God can do that, the angel is insinuating, then God should be able to handle a simple teenage pregnancy. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now those are practically the same words that an angel spoke to Abraham and Sarah many, many, many years before when they received word that they would have a child when they were both in their 90s right? That's tremendous precedence. Nothing will be impossible for God. Verse 38, then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So long before the Beatles penned those words, Mary said, let it be. Right? She consented to this crazy thing that was about to take place, not just in her body, but in her entire life. And make no mistake, it was going to happen nonetheless, but Mary had a choice, right? Is she going to embrace it or fight against it? She chose to embrace it, even if it meant that she herself might be at risk because of that very choice, being an unwed, pregnant teenage mom. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to Mary as Theotokos, the God-bearer. She willingly consented to carry, give birth to, nurse, and raise the Son of God. It doesn't mean she wasn't afraid at times. In fact, I imagine she was quite probably afraid uh, quite a bit, given the reality of her situation. But she didn't let that fear stop her. She didn't let it keep her from living the life that God had placed before her. Christmas is coming, friends. It'll be here in four and a half weeks, whether we are ready or not. And in that first Christmas story, we're reminded that Mary's life was completely turned upside down, that first unexpected Christmas, that sudden crisis in her life. And we've just entered this period of Advent, this period of waiting and preparation. And and dare I say that maybe more than any other year, this year we have had quite a bit of practice in waiting, haven't we? We should be very good at waiting this Advent. Thanks, COVID. Anyway, the story of Advent, the story of Christmas, is that new things are being birthed all around us. 
listen to that again. New things are being birthed all around us. Frederick Buechner puts it this way. Something new and shattering is breaking through into something old. Something is trying to be born. And if the new things are going to be born, then the old thing is going to have to give way. And there's agony in that process as well as joy, just as there's agony in the womb as it labors and contracts to bring forth new life. So I'm not going to tell you that, oh, this Christmas is just going to be like every other, and even though it's online, it's going to feel exactly the same. No, it totally isn't. This is going to be an unexpected Christmas in so many ways. But I do believe that we can experience something new and powerful this Christmas if we'll let it, if we'll embrace it, if we'll go with where God has placed us. Hey, because, hey, something new is happening all over the world, right? COVID has changed so much of how we live. In some ways, things may never be as they were. So are we going to sit here and, and grumble and gripe about how wonderful it was in the past? Are we going to embrace the new that God is trying to birth in us and in this world? Meister Eckhart, the medieval mystic and theologian, wrote this. We are all meant to be mothers of God. What good is it to me if this eternal birth of the divine son takes place unceasingly but does not take place within myself? And what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace if I am not also full of grace? What good is it to me for the creator to give birth to a son if I do not also give birth to him in my time and my culture? That was written in the 14th century. Theotokos, the God-bearers. <laughs> this, this isn't just about Mary. This is about us. Hopefully, friends, this will be our first and last COVID Christmas. We can't change what's taking place in this world, although we can make choices to help preventing the spread of the pandemic. But we can choose to allow the Holy Spirit to overshadow us and whatever priorities we may be bringing to this Christmas. May we be open to what God wants to do in and through us. Might we, could we, will we embrace this unexpected Christmas? I mean, what if, what if, what if this Christmas is the one where God comes to us in a new and unexpected way like God did to Mary some 2,000 years ago. Will we be ready? Amen.